Hey, this is Andrew Benioff with the Independent Lodging Congress here in Denver for our 2023 Confab. And I'm here with Christopher Plant of Radio Kismet, our partner in Indie Colorcast. And we're here today to speak with Paul Tamborello. Paul's a really interesting guy. He's the owner of Generator Real Estate, a community-focused team of real estate experts, developers, and advisors in Denver. Paul's focus is uh, creative design and transformative value-driven development for the people of Denver. Paul's also the owner of Little Man Ice Cream, known for their tasty flavors and iconic milk can-shaped building. Really excited to talk with Paul and uh, Christopher. It's awesome to have you here today with me. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I'm very excited about these conversations. I love Denver and I'm very happy to be here. Great, let's get going with Paul. Paul, thank you for joining us. Appreciate you uh, coming on. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. Let's start by talking a little bit about Generator, your company. There's been a, a number of articles that I've read that talk about you placing a lot of emphasis on community in your projects. How do you design and build a space that fosters community? Well, I think it starts, you know, with intention. And to me, any investment in real estate is first an investment in community. I certainly have never functioned and our company doesn't operate in a way where we do investment from afar and only look at it as a financial sort of thing. I think it's a privilege to build cities. And I think that's how we try to approach it. Um, so we start with community first, what they would like to see, what animates that community, what missing amenities they could use. Um, and we really try to start there and grow a vision. Well, I love that. When you go to the community, as you just mentioned, do you look at that community and say, what's the need? Is that one of the ways that you start? Um, no, we really try to discover it. I don't really try to come in with a, a prescribed, this is what I think the community needs. I mean, I certainly have ideas, but you know, we've really tried to operate from a place where we don't go in with a prescribed intention, but to really listen first and then kind of formulate what we think could work. And then of course, you know, you have to try to make financial sense of things, but that's also an area where we, we typically don't try to hit home runs. We try to hit, you know, good second base hits and leave something on the table for all involved. Well, and bringing the community into the conversation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And can you just tell us a little bit in your own words, a little bit about Generator so that our audience understands what the sweet spot of your company is? Sure. It's, you know, we have sort of two disciplines. We do brokerage, both residential and commercial brokerage. And that's really how I got my start. And then um, the development side of things. Then we also have property management because we manage all of our own properties, which I think is also very important for real estate development. If a developer has is hands-on day-to-day involved in the management of their projects, I think it gives you a much better sense of what really is going on and what the needs are of your tenants. When it gets into the, the stewardship of the project, because I think a lot of people build things with the intention of selling them. And if you build to own and operate, you're going to have a much deeper connection with what you're making. Yeah. Stewardship is the perfect word for it. That's what it's about. That's great. That's amazing. This is obviously an interview for Indie Congress. And so I can't skip a question about hospitality. And I think that most of your development is not necessarily hospitality focused, but I think you've done a little bit in the food side, as well as maybe a smaller project uh, with a hostel, I think you had talked about before. Could you sort of uh, give us a little bit of background on those? Sure. We um, took an old building down here in Denver, the Airedale building. It was built in actually 1890 that was 
basically collapsing in on itself. It was originally built as the two upper floors were hotel rooms. And then the ground floor was, you know, restaurant, a bar. And it's been many things over the years. When I bought it, the whole building was a porn store. And it had, you know, live nude girls dancing kind of thing going on still when we purchased it. But we went through the whole thing. We stabilized it and did it. I think it was about a 40-bed hostel upstairs. We worked with a, a group, a fish hostel. And, uh, and then the ground floor we turned into an entertainment kind of venue. Oh, a new kind of entertainment. <laughs> yeah, a different. Yeah. I kind of wish we had that license, though. We could have. I mean, I'm not the operator of either one of them. Yeah. But I think the operator downstairs could have had some real fun with the. the it would have been cabaret and burlesque. Yeah, that's exactly what it could have been. Yes. Yeah. 21st century. Right. Yeah. Not drop the quarter. And yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> so also reading a little bit about you, I understand that philanthropy is something that's really important for you and your business. Can you talk about what that looks like? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I certainly personally believe in the law of circulation. You know, the more you circulate it, the more it comes back. And uh, I would say that law of circulation is at the heart of how we do business or try to do business. We fail at it every day, but we're working on it. And my mother always used to say, volunteerism is a price you pay for being human. And I think it's just part of how we try to operate day to day. It's our ethos. It's in, it's in, it's in our culture and how we operate. Do you have a specific philanthropy organization that you support or multiple ones? Well, through the development side of things, um, I would say we've primarily focused on education philanthropy in the area. Um, and then we, through some of our other companies, every, you know, I own a, <laughs> one of the projects that I did, we had a, a little vacant piece of land between these two buildings. And that's where we built Little Man. And it kind of started as a hobby um, and now it's, you know, 220 employees later, it's, the hobby has grown into a real business and eight stores. And, and every one of those locations has a different philanthropic focus. So I had just come off the road working with an organization doing medical care um, abroad and taking teams and doing immersive, you know, kind of work with doctors. Um, and so that started as really about hunger and nutrition. And so we've provided food relief and things throughout the world. I mean, all over, I just got back from Guatemala two weeks ago with a program that we sponsored down there for about, gosh, probably four or five years now. But we've done Uganda. We have programs in Uganda and Senegal and Cambodia and Vietnam and all over the place. But, you know, all the other locations have different focus as well. Like our project out in uh, Eastbridge focuses on STEM education. We have a project called Sweet Cooies that focuses on women's empowerment. Um, and so we, we always kind of choose a focus and, and try to stay true to that. But honestly, at the heart of all of it, though, still is the community. And we focus most of those dollars into education. Really amazing. Yeah. Can you tell us just a little bit? I mean, I think it's really interesting the way that you bring philanthropy, you bring your work in, you bring entrepreneurship all together. Tell us a little bit about how your early days of just getting into the real estate field. And, and I'll have a follow-up question about how you followed that by bringing in these core components of the philanthropy and the other stuff that was very important to you into your career. But like your start in real estate. I got to start in real estate. Actually, I, I was a, a youth minister and I worked for the Catholic Archdiocese for about 12 years. And I remember, you know, when I just felt like there was a lack of congruency there for me in terms of doing ministry any longer. I stepped out and really decided, what am I going to do? You know, all of my, 
all of my education is in theology and I, yeah. but I had always had an interest in real estate. I had a cousin who was very involved in real estate and decided to go for it. So I got my real estate license and I'll never forget the first commission check I got was it just completely blew me away. It was like a third of what my salary was as a youth minister. Yeah. It was one check. Yeah. And then I also had, you know, come out of a career where I had built a relationship of trust with people and uh, that relationship of trust really parlayed into a, a very, you know, robust first few couple of years for me because it just took off. People really were like, oh man, we'd love to work with you, help us, you know, find our home. And, and so that just kept growing. And then my interest in development, you know, started to gather some steam as I started working with developers to help them find opportunities and primarily adaptive reuse. And, and I learned a lot. I had an early developer, Mark Brannon, that I worked with who, he really taught me about risk. He was a guy that would look at a building and everybody else would just sort of pass on it or think you're crazy. And he would take it and make something happen. Um, and so I was really fortunate there. And then I had an early business partner, Stephanie Garcia, who I worked on the project that I think we're going to tour uh, here tomorrow. And she really taught me how to look at buildings in a different way, right? So I was, I've, I've had some incredible mentors and partners along the way um, in terms of, you know, my development career. And then the, the entrepreneurship piece, like where did that come from? Was that something that came from your family? Because that's certainly not something that is like uh, an innate part of theology. You know, how did you build that in and, and really come to embrace that? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, I honestly think it probably at my core stems from my father, who was, you know, the oldest boy of 12 children. And he only had a third grade education because he, you know, once he got to fourth grade, he had to, during the depression, he started working with my grandfather who was a Sicilian immigrant and they were basically trashmen. They emptied ash pits and, um, never get into a land war with a Sicilian. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's worked several times in real life. I'll bet you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think, you know, he always aspired to more. I think he always felt held back because of, you know, life circumstances. And I remember as a young man thinking, man, if I get opportunities, I am going to take them because I remember my dad, we'd drive somewhere and he'd be like, Oh, I could have bought that house for, you know, $6,000. He never had $6,000, but it was, you know, he, he was very aspirational and I think he instilled that in me. And so, you know, I don't know exactly, but I think in total, I've probably started, I don't know, over 20 different companies some successful, some failed, some sold, some still working, right? And what usually happens is I get an interest in something and then I somehow parlay it into a, a business. Yeah, it's the, the hobby first. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly, it really, you know, I mean, we have a distillery now that I just read an article about the guy who started Sipsmith Gin in mm -hmm. London. And I was like, hi, that sounds like a great thing to do as you think about retiring. And, you know, now here we are into our sixth year and it's really doing well, so. That's absolutely amazing. I love the focus on adaptive reuse. And that's a really, you know, I'm a real estate guy as well. It's a hard thing to do, especially with some of these buildings, as you described, that are, you know, falling down or in really bad shape. How do you, when you see this building, I mean, it's a lot of risk that you're taking, right? By acquiring something that could be falling down. You got to put a lot of money in. How do you, how do you figure that puzzle out? Well, I think for me, because I don't have a background in finance, I noticed I read a little bit about you. You have a you have your MBA, right? And I have found most people with MBAs talk themselves out of deals all the time. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah, and agree and more. I kind of approached it more like I'm going to figure it out, right? I I trusted my instincts and 
just knew. And, and plus I, you know, I was willing to kind of put the monopoly pieces on the table every time, you know, I'm a single guy. So it's like, you know, I don't have a family at home that I got to feed and make sure, you know, I could, I could live in a garage if I had to and have. Mm-hmm. So um, I just was <laughs> might, like, might even find it preferable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I lived in a greenhouse for a while. I mean, I just like, you just, you do what you got to do. And um, yeah, there is definitely inherent risk. And I feel like in terms of adaptive reuse, that is often the sort of threshold reason why a lot of people don't get into it. Right. I, I agree. Am, you just see risk around every corner. Yeah. And there are so many unknowns often, right? You sometimes you can't look through walls, you can't look under floors, you can't, but when you tear it all up and all of a sudden you discover, oh my gosh, there's, you know, asbestos here, there's a gas tank here, there's who knows what, a number of potential problems. Yeah. Listen, I've had a, a partner previously that, you know, we passed on a hundred deals. We ended up doing seven or eight together, right. but it was, uh, paralysis by analysis we mm-hmm. just, just kept underwriting and underwriting until he figured out a way to say no and so um but i'm uh, similarly working on a deal right now that i you know i've purchased some land in the mountains and my gut feeling tells me it's a really interesting place to develop and there is risk around every corner but i'm just trying to push forward yeah absolutely i think i think it's important i mean you know obviously we all do our best to take the most calculated risk but at the end of the day it's still risk Right, and I think adaptive reuse has more potential challenges than you know just ground up construction, which is why I think a lot of people talk themselves out of it. And and I think also a lot of when people look at your final product years later, when they're just singing along, and so valuable, they say, "Wow, that guy's so lucky. He did all that. That's amazing. He did all that stuff." But they don't realize all the hardship and financial risk and stress that it took to get to that point. Well, it, you can think. look at a project like that and think it, it's so intuitively obvious. And yet, you know, there it wasn't are, then, right? Right. No, and, and so many developers, as we have noted here, terrified of the unknown. And so they can pencil out new construction to the penny. But then when you get into some of these adaptive reuse projects, you, you never really know. And so, you know, of course, you obviously have a, a, a theory of everything is a figure outable. But I think that the other thing that Andrew was getting at is like the story uh, behind these buildings is obviously something that you're very drawn to. Can you talk a little bit about that and about the the sort of story behind some of these buildings and how you build that into the future use? Yeah, I think it's, to me, adaptive reuse is, is more vocational than it is business, right? Mm-hmm. It's where sort of the needs of a community intersect with hopefully your skills and your talents. And typically, I try to spend a night or two in every building as soon as we close on it, you know, to just kind of be just... <laughs> Maybe it sounds silly, but just try to get the energy of the building. What, what can it be? What should it be? What are we missing? Where's the, you know, I like to call it the hidden wholeness of a building that sometimes has been overlooked, particularly, you know, there are buildings that are so obvious of what they could be and yeah. they're, you know, train stations and old Masonic lodges and, yeah. you know, churches and some of those are, you know, but when you take like just a beat up old brick warehouse and you're like, okay, what do we do with this? Uh, those can be a little bit more difficult to sort of reimagine. Um, but, you know, I think that's the exciting part of it. Right? Well, that's like seeing the invisible future, you know, where you're looking at something and where you can think about, like, what is opening this wall going to mean to, you know, the new definition mm-hmm. of this property? And so how did you come to really understand the construction process of the redevelopment stuff that you were doing? 
Oh, my, I think it was my business partner, Mark Brandon. He was a contractor by trade and uh, just working with him really learned how to read plans, learn how to, you know, just kind of go through that whole construction, literally nitty gritty process. And I love getting my hands dirty in the process. I'm not one of those people that like, you know, just sits back and, you know, does your OAC meeting every, you know, Tuesday and, you know, get updates. I mean, I love being in the building, walking the building, you know, working with contractors, working with electricians, working with plumbers, do whatever I can. I, I, I really enjoy it. So to me, there's such an inherent value in working with old buildings. To yeah. me, there, there is a sacred quality to them. I mean, if you think about it, somebody laid every single one of those bricks. And again, they, I get very excited with old buildings. I love that. I love that. I do want to switch gears just a little bit because, as I mentioned in the intro, you founded and created Little Man Ice Cream. And it's hard to find somebody who doesn't like ice cream. I am a huge fan myself. And I think it's really interesting. You have a background in real estate. Why'd you decide to get in the ice cream business? I mean, you, you just described the gin business, so maybe that's just an offshoot. <laughs> well, like I mentioned a little bit ago, like, you know, I had this land between these two buildings and the community where it is in the lower Highland neighborhood really, and frankly, you know, the way the city developed, we had very few community hubs, gathering places, plazas, whatever you want to call it, you know, from whatever era of design. And so we thought, let's really build a community amenity. It was across the street from the only park in the neighborhood, which is a very small park. And we thought, wouldn't it be great to kind of create this gathering place? And so we... It would be sweet. Look at that. It's so good. Yes, it was sweet. And um, I also wanted to do something that was more akin to like roadside design. Mm -hmm. And so a friend of mine turned me onto a book called California Crazy, which chronicles all that kind of roadside vernacular of architecture and loved it. And in that book, I found something, it was a milk can. It was different, but it was, it inspired me to like, oh, that's it. I want to do something like that. And so, yeah, we, we wanted to build something that, you know, was interesting that uh, kids could interact with on, we call it the six senses of little man, where you could, you know, it's all about everything. It's about the smell, the touch, the everything, the taste, it's all of it. And we, we really tried to make that happen in that experience there. So it's been fun. That's uh, very cool. Now, does the philosophy of generator, as we, as you've already discussed earlier in the conversation, does it flow through to little man ice cream as well? Some of the things that you're doing? Oh, very much. Yeah. The team there is amazing that I have at little man. And yes, it's funny. We really don't consider Well, we're an ice cream company for sure, but we really kind of consider ourselves a youth leadership company right. that uses ice cream as its vehicle. That really is what we are trying to do and constantly building on. Uh, we're oftentimes a, a young person's first job and we really want them when they leave little man, we want them to have a really solid set of work experience and, um, you know, values that hopefully they've learned by working at Little Man. And, you know, I, I love it when people are like, oh, I love hiring Little Man people because they're just so well, you know, they're trained well, they care about what they're doing, they're passionate, they have a, you know, all the things that you hope any employee you hire, you know, or person to join your company. Has. Well, and, I, you know, we're all familiar with like a principle-driven ice cream company like Ben and & Jerry's. And, right. you know, very few people, very few companies like yours would list out their principles on their website. Can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to have four core principles um, as part of your, your business plan? Well, I think, you know, it, it's critical to the success of the company and to get everybody on board what 
where you're going, what you're doing, what's driving you. Well, and, and tying into that idea that, you know, it, it's the first job for a lot of people and that does not necessarily mean it has to be a throwaway job. Right? right. And so if you are given the opportunity to provide a respectful uh, position that can develop a sense of integrity in work, you know, I think that that's a really interesting way of, of going about an entry level job and not necessarily treating it like that. But, you know, so how do you incorporate the principles into your connection with your employees? We do it through a variety of ways. I would say our management team is sort of every day checking in with our, our young people in a leadership role, in a mentoring role. We do a thing called, it's a two-day program we do every year because, you know, we, we're seasonal, right? So mm -hmm. we, we're just about to hire 120 people. Right. And, and then we do a thing called Scoop Camp. And so we take two Scoop. days, <laughs> we take two days to, um, first day is all about allergies and, you know, understanding people's allergies. It's about, you know, size of scoops. It's all, all the technical aspects of, you know, what running an ice cream store is all about. And then the second day is all about that sort of leadership, work ethic, all those other pieces, those soft skills that I would say that are really important for young people to learn. Um, you know, how to, we have a whole track on confrontational, you know, conversations or difficult conversations. And we have, you know, a track on philanthropy. We have a track on all, just all these different things that we think are the more the soft skills of, of developing young people. So, but they're lifelong skills. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, there's still skills I'm trying to develop, and you know, <laughs> we're we're um, <laughs> we're never done. Yeah, never done. But besides helping all of the youth and and the amazing training that you're doing, you also have this program called Scoop for Scoop, and yeah. I think that that is another initiative that you. I think it's amazing that you bring it outside of little man. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, that's again, what we were talking about a little bit earlier where it started for me as rice, right? I was doing a lot of trips to um, Senegal and we were going very remote. We'd be right on the border of Mauritania doing, you know, medical relief and where people literally, you know, have no option of what to eat except for maybe rice and beans or some other type of protein. Um, and we, I just came back from those trips, very inspired to want to do something about nutrition around the world. And so we committed originally to do a scoop of rice for every scoop of ice cream we sold. And then as we started to travel to other parts of the world, realized that maybe rice isn't as accessible and all that stuff. So we basically just said for every scoop of ice cream we sell, we put five cents into a fund and we have a community action committee where uh, once a month, we take all of those funds, we set them aside and we say, okay, what do we want to do with it? And we get people who will ask us for support. And that's what we're talking about in terms of local schools. But we have also programs like Far Away Friends and some of these other programs that we sponsored for years. We just did a $7,000 grant for the next year of a school in Uganda, which will feed them breakfast and lunch for the whole rest of for the next year. And what's great about it is I don't make those choices. Those are not choices I make as the owner of the company. It's the employee and the, and the staff. And actually we've engaged customers to join our COC committee. And we've had customers over the years who will are very committed to being part of making the decisions about where those funds go. And so love that. That's yeah, absolutely amazing. It's, it's been a, it, it's really, it's, it's amazing to see the young people engage and it's amazing to see customers like really care about what's going on. And, and those are resources that they can use to kind of funnel into areas of interest that they may have in a philanthropic way. It's very cool. Paul, I want to thank you for 
coming in today. And we're really excited to have you as part of our confab while we're here in Denver. And excited to hear you talk about adaptive reuse, uh, which is coming up and really appreciate it. And Christopher, thanks for putting this whole thing together. My pleasure. Really fun. Really fun conversation. Thanks, Andrew. This has been great. I'm really looking forward to the conference. Thank you so much. I'm Paul Tamborello, and I'm here at the Independent Lodging Congress here at the Maven Hotel in Denver, Colorado.